What does it mean to be a Swiss woman of Bamilika heritage? In this episode, Danielle shares with us the various manifestations of racism she experienced growing up in the outskirts of Zurich, Switzerland, and living in Cameroon, Brazil, and South Africa. Her story is about how her experiences contributed to and shaped her understanding of the world we live in. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Danielle. I'm Danielle Isler. I'm a native of Zurich. I grew up in a small village in the outskirts of Zurich. And I was the only Black person, like, anywhere, <laughs> everywhere. Like, in school or in, like, in the Maitliriga, like, this uh, physical sports group of girls. And when I grew up, I knew, like, from a very young age that I was the other but in fact, I was not the other. I was made the other. And this was really painful for a young black girl. And I would say that a big part or a major part of my life, I really wanted to belong, like to be Swiss with my Swiss German, with acting Swiss and behaving properly in all possible spaces. Danielle recalled specific moments from school time when she was othered. I would go to a party like a birthday party of a friend of mine and there's it's a pool party we're sitting in the garden and then there comes like the godmother of this child who doesn't know that she has a black child or like a child in school and she would like say oh she has I don't know Emily just take a name there's a black child in Emily's class oh my gosh oh I see that she's really well spoken and they speak about me I'm like two meters away oh she's really she behaves good she's not like you know these African children and they were talk about me as if I would, would be like a statue for instance and like observe me like an experiment like a, a mouse in like a cage another example was like in class where the teacher asked I had a very racist teacher and I was a child, I could not really understand that, that she was racist. And she would not give me any roles in the theater. I really loved theater. I loved the stage. And I was like, my hand was up. Oh, this role. Oh, this. She would give me like the smallest role. And like, you know, it was like fun to her to see me suffering. And it was very painful. Or once I remember when she asked the class who is Swiss here and then everyone was raising their hand and she was like no Danielle you're not Swiss you're black and everyone was laughing. It took Danielle years to unlearn and free herself from the dominant societal expectations that her existence would need to be justified by being the good one quote-unquote. I started to reflect on strategies or my coping mechanisms on my beliefs or my belief systems and on all of that. And this was hard work, really, to unlearn and forgive also yourself. And I think that I then really started more and more <laughs> to say, like, hey, no, I don't want to belong. I just want to be me. And 
I remember when I really decided for myself, hey, I won't say anymore that I like study or just to belong because I know that my status grows because I've experienced that. I've lived the experience. And I would not talk performatively, just talk when I really want to talk because I'm an extrovert. I like to talk <laughs> and discuss. And I really would just be like, if you like me, then like me for who I am and not because I'm like the, the good one. Like, I don't want people to like me because of what I achieve. I want them to, to like me because I'm me. And if they don't like black person, they don't like me, then should, they should not talk to me. I'm not like the good one. I don't want to be the good one. Because I really used to have, like, all of my life until today, I have, like, many ex-friends, or not boyfriends, or ex-friends, <laughs> because I couldn't bear it anymore, this internalized racism. And, like, me being the exception, Danielle, you know, you know you're not like the other. You're a good black person because you, Swiss, you speak Swiss German, you know the culture, and you studied. I'm not scared of you, but the others. But I used to be, like, always, like, the exception, like... If I would be included in a social space, because I also experienced a lot of racism, then it was like, because I was the good one, you know, because they knew my, my, my bio or my CV. <laughs> and then at one point in my life, I said, oh, no, I, I'm tired of that. I'm so tired of it. And I did it like the, the very opposite, <laughs> like from zero to hundred or I don't know. And I would be like in, yeah, get to know new people. And after one year, because I made like a mistake, they would know that I study. For instance, we were like on a barbecue and then it was our friends who, who they liked me. Yeah, but, you know, they were friends of friends, but we were like a group from of 10 people. And so and then we were like planning to go to Tel Aviv all together. And I was very enthusiastic. And yeah, I've never been there and I've heard so many good things, uh, also bad things. But I really want to, to see and um, to experience that also like because I'm a social anthropologist to see also the conflict there, etc. But then we were looking for dates uh, like when to go and then I was like oh no sorry I cannot go because of my job at the uni and they were like Unispital? I'm like no 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 university like ah oh, but you're working there as what and then they were like already guessing like I don't remember if if it was like just in the office like Kofau or and I was like no I study there and I work in research they were like wow, at University of Zurich? And I was like, yes, I, I'm a student assistant and I'm in a research project there. So after this moment, <laughs> I was very welcome. <laughs> and now I became like the friends, like those people that asked me were not anymore my, the friends of, the fr of friends, they were my friends <laughs> or they see me as their friends. And um, yes, this is like, the story of my life, like one example, you know, that the moment I talk, they hear my Swiss German, my the status grows, and then it grows and grows and grows. If I remove myself from blackness, like their stereotypical belief of blackness, because I speak Swiss German, I have a degree, and then I'm not that black. I'm the good one. Danielle elaborates on the background and origin of the notion, the good one, in Switzerland. Switzerland, you know, there is subtle racism, but they did like really uh, Switzerland, like a like a country, did like 
really things, you know, for instance, some insurances insure ships with enslaved people, you know, and there is no, it's not my, me uh, inventing that. It's like proven. (laughs) And Switzerland has a a racist legacy and a colonial legacy and and, slavery, et cetera, you know, and we see it also in the songs, you know, or or the games we played. We we played, for instance, there, who is scared of the black man? in kindergarten, also in high school, like in the school class, in the curriculum, it was not like outside, no. Who is scared of the black man was this game. And then we had to run. And I didn't understand it until maybe 20, that it was. <laughs> and then you could be contaminated. A person is on one side of the wall. And then when she touches you, you also become black. It was a game, you know, people uh, like children running. Oh, no, I don't want to get touched, you know. And there's the lyrics of the songs we sang in school. They're racist. They had these stereotypes, the globy books, all, you know, the, the curriculum, like the culture is so, is there, you know. Pippi Langstrumpf, Rausperli Theater, all these things, you know. Blacks are, are, are in general, people of color are, are, are seen as like, you know, we should help them. They don't have knowledge. And they are this... Ah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't know even, yeah. And this is why, you know, people who say good one, they, they mean what they have learned because those very often know me as a black person. I'm the only black person. They interact really, you know, maybe they say hello to, I don't know who is black, but I'm the only black person they interacted like more than 30 minutes or, or even longer, you know. Based on her own experiences, Danielle reflects on what it means to be Swiss. I think that to be Swiss goes along with many things. So it's the language, like in the German-speaking part, like Swiss German, without accent, you know, with a Swiss German accent. And race, of course, being white. And surname. I think that these three things are like the most important things, you know, because you can be like, you're white, you speak fluently Swiss German, but your name is Petrovic, for instance, because you have like heritage from Serbia. And this person could even like cheese, go hiking, but it's not because the name, the surname is also very important. And this is like still like the definition, I would say <laughs> today, like the broad definition, like when people talk about it, like the, the discourse, you know. But for me, being Swiss is the person who identifies as Swiss. During her university years, Danielle traveled to different countries and cities. There, she would experience and observe carrying manifestations and explicitness of racism and othering. She recalls one of her first trips when she went to Cameroon to pursue field work for her bachelor's studies amongst the Bamileka community, of which she has heritage from. This experience was also very hard for me because there I was also the other. During my field work, they called me white, like a FF name for white, like foreigner or something. Like one of the languages of the Bamileka ethnicity is, is FF. And um, that was also very painful. and. A small boy is telling me, like, why are you wearing hot pants? Because Bamnike women are, are wearing like, long dresses until the feet. And I was, like, in hot pants because I was, I was so... Yeah, I didn't even realize that. 
And many times, like, criticizing me, why I don't know this, why I only speak French, because unfortunately I don't speak forever. And that was also very painful because for me, I looked like them. You know? I'm black, I have the same hair, the same features, everything. And there not to be welcome and to be treated, you know, as, yeah, that was very painful. For instance, in the market, they would not triple, but like really 10 times the price. They would talk about me in my presence like small things like that, like exclusionary things, you know, and try to, you know, bribe me in a certain way and not taking me serious. But at the same time, I'm having like so many expectations like that I should know this and that and this food, etc. And I'm like, I don't. I'm so sorry. I, Yeah, it was very difficult for me. At the same time, they see me as white person. But they also see me as their sister, and I should know everything. It's like, huh, what? It's, it doesn't make any sense. Danielle also went to Brazil to visit a friend who is married to a white Brazilian and lived in a gated community. I had learned or knew about Brazil, like, you know, from newspaper articles or so, and also in social anthropology, some seminar. But to be there was very different. Just seeing like people who look like me as gardeners or security personnel and in the light skinned one they were in the houses cleaning it was it's really like a racial thing <laughs> like from the skin tone like colorism structural colorism you can guess like the position of this person like skilled personnel or whatever and there i really saw wow crazy this space is even worse than in, than Switzerland. <laughs> From like, not that in Switzerland the reason doesn't exist, but it's like more covered. There, it's like open. They call you things. They are not ashamed to do this, or or they want you to know explicitly you don't belong through some actions or through how they treated me. <laughs> and many times they thought that I was like working for the family because um, she had two little sons, uh, where one like three years old and one like maybe one year old, years old. But it was still special because I was dark-skinned and it was still like a revolution that they took me as nanny for their children. <laughs> and... I was like getting like very angry. I said, hey, did you see that and that? And she was like, no, don't take it personal, you know. It's normal here. And, you know, ah, oh, I know why they mistook you for my worker. It's because you, you were white, because there are also black coats, you know, with dresses when you were white. It's like clear you're working for the family. And then I visited her friends throughout the country, also in, in Rio and in, in Salvador da Bahia. And in Salvador, where over 80% has African, has of African heritage there, really, I, I couldn't anymore to see like these gated communities. And also this racial spatial segregation in Sao Paulo, I was like, okay, maybe it's because of this and that. And it's the reason why I don't see any black persons like in the restaurants we, I went with her and her family. Like in all the spaces, social spaces she goes, maybe it's because of, you know, this and that. But in Salvador, where I, I visited her friends and they took me also to a restaurant to her, to this and that. 
it was like Sweden to me. It was not even Switzerland. It was like so white, so blonde. Not that it's it's negative, but it's like crazy to see black people who, yeah, in the streets, it could be like Bamako or something, like an African city. But then you, you're in a restaurant and it's Europe and everyone looks at you like, you're a ghost because it's so uncommon to see a dark-skinned person also eating there. And also there, you know, when they see me, of course, they could guess because of my, you know, the way I, I walk or something that maybe I'm a foreigner, but they're not really sure. But my status still starts very low. And then I talk and then, oh, she's a foreigner. And then they know Western Europe. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's it always that... I start somewhere and then maybe I grow and then I have to perform or do something and doing nothing will probably keep me there. Or, yeah, of course, I can also just wear expensive clothes, but this is also like a, a way of performing a class or something. Afterwards, Danielle went to Cape Town, South Africa. I went there to do an internship at the University of Cape Town at the Michaelis Gallery. I was like the intern there. And there, like, for me, it was like even worse than in Brazil. I, I, I thought that Brazil was the peak of over racism. Like, they want you to know, I dislike you. I don't want you here. Please don't come again. This is a white space. They want you to know that, you know, overtly. And... Cape Town is the peak for me. And there it was crazy. I had like a studio, I rented a studio. And as a Swiss person, I can, of course, because of how capitalism works, and I can afford to live in a white area there. And it was crazy because I, I was the only person living there. It was near the Michaelis campus. Very, uh, yeah, it was not bad, like not very posh, but it was, I would say, proper. And then I would, for instance, walk with like five liters of water on the left side and five liters of water on the right side. And I, I'm standing in front of my, the building and there is a white person. He's seen me like at least 15 times. He knows that I also live there. But he wouldn't let the door open for me. He's like literally two meters in front of me. He could wait two seconds. But then he looks at me like to, to tell me I've seen you. <laughs> but I won't just let the door open that you can go. <laughs> and then I have to, you know, put the water on the floor and then looking for my keys and then open again you know this was like regularly like small things like that or I would say hello good morning to a person like in the building and then the person would look at me and not, not say anything they don't perform I didn't hear they look at you I heard but I want response or what I also experience very often, like I go to a restaurant and they would give me the seat like next to the toilet, but the restaurant would be empty. And I wanted this restaurant because of the view, because I'm a, I was a tourist there and I wanted to see and, and it was very nice, like the landscape is very nice. And I would fight with them to be able to sit at the veranda to have the view and that was very crazy. And they were like, no, it's not allowed to eat there. And I'm like, but I see people eating there. Oh, no, because it's an exception. I have to ask the manager. 
And most important is like, this, this is where black people saying that because, or, or colored people, the colored community who work in these restaurants telling me, because it's not like they are racist or whatever, but it's their job. <laughs> they can be kicked out or lose their job if they don't. Because there are really also studies that there is a white flight also like in restaurants or like so, social space like that, that if they see that white people, the white community, that black people are coming often to this restaurant, they will change the restaurant because their identity uh, is not anymore the same. And because, yeah, it's like these black people can also afford to go here. Yeah, their identity is also connected with like to be far away from black people. Then I asked someone at the University of Cape Town and he was like, oh, your observation is true. <laughs> we do that. And I also used to work in a restaurant and I almost got kicked out because I was doing re resistance and seating the black population and the non-white population where they wanted. And they gave me like warnings and I cannot lose my job. I need the job to fund my studies. Danielle's exposure to racism in different contexts throughout her life, aimed both at herself and others, ultimately led her to pursue her PhD to better understand why the world is as it is today. I'm really highly interested in to looking into whiteness because I want to really reverse the gaze. And what is the cause of my fears and of my experiences and of the experiences of people who've looked like me? or the others who don't look like me but are not white. And the pain, the trauma we experience from a very young age, that's, that's terrible. That's really terrible. It's not possible that a three-year-old knows that this child doesn't like me because I'm Black. Not because my name is Danielle, but because I'm Black. A three-year-old can already see there are studies that shows that children already from at the age of two or three know okay this was because of the skin color of my features or whatever not because of me and when I see black children today especially like in like some outskirt <laughs> communities or villages I still feel bad for them because I know what I experienced and and Maybe it's a bit better in the city, in the, the city of Zurich, where it's more international, but it's still there. I also heard about stories of, of Black children experiencing really hard racism, really. And it's traumatizing. It's really traumatizing. And the worst part of it is like, it won't get much better. And you can pay yourself maybe like out of this very hard racism, only like with Swiss German, with your education, etc., like things like that, you know, because you move away from blackness, but still you will experience it. And it's also very hard that this is like the the thing that will save you a bit from this very overt reason. And this is why in my PhD thesis, I'm really looking at the cause of these things <laughs> and whiteness as a structure. And what is whiteness actually? And how is whiteness constructed? Because it's a construction, it's an ideology, but it's an ideology we feel and we see and we experience and people are traumatized. And there are studies that show that over years, microaggressions, they, they lead to medical illnesses like heart disease and nervous system diseases, etc. Because this trauma is not easy 
And we still live in a capitalistic world. We have to continue. We experience this kind of microaggression and then we continue living because we have to. We have to go to work. We have homework. We have this and that. We, we cannot take our time to mourn. It's like very limited. And there are so a few uh, safe spaces for us. What I also wanted to say is like microaggressions are only called microaggressions, but actually they are macro or I don't know. And we still think about it. You know, when something happens like for one minute or 10 seconds, but we can f still feel the pain 10 years later. When someone calls you the N-word, for instance, it's like three seconds. But the consequence, like the pain you feel can be lifelong. That's also the unfair things. The things that happened for the oppressors were like limited in time. But for the oppressed people, it can be a lifelong unlearning or healing or whatever, a lifelong thing. But for them, it's like, what? You're still talking about what happened in kindergarten. It was only children, please. Come on. They were eight years old. They didn't know better. They had racist parents. Come on, get over it. No, it's not that easy to get over it because the pain you feel, it can determine your life, you know. Danielle points out the importance of nuance and the necessity to think intersectionally when addressing issues around racism. What I said, like in this podcast, I often said blackness or, or whites or people of color. Of course, it's not like I don't want to reify and the things. Of course, there there is also white trash. You shouldn't forget that, you know. And there is capitalism, you know. <laughs> there is gender. There is also, you know, homophobia, etc. You know, there is not one whiteness. And also there, there are different shades and like shades, like in, in terms of like hierarchies. And other shades in terms of, you know, who is not anymore white, you know. A person from Iran going to South Africa is not white. But this person, like in, in Iran, these persons, uh, people there also have like blue eyes or something or, or brown or blonde hair. You know, I also met people like in Cape Town who, who have Iran heritage, but they are not white there. They're Arabic. But if they go to Brazil, they're white. Because I have friends in Brazil who have, um, their surname is Abdallah, for instance, or something like an, an Arabic, but they are white there, you know. This is also like, it, it also depends on the geography, etc. And, and it, it also moves, you know, it's not like a fixed category, you know. I'm also more, way more privileged than other black people because of my surname my diplomas, the languages, also the, the skills I have, like the, the Western skills I acquired, I'm way more privileged. I cannot talk for all Black people. My experience is maybe one of the most privileged experiences in Switzerland. I don't know. I cannot say. Because in my home, I spoke Swiss German. I spoke French. We had a computer. I was Western, you know, the, the education was Western, you know. Maybe I'm the most, one of the most privileged Black person. Yeah, I, I just want to point out it's much more complex than we talk here, you know. <laughs> Against the background of her experiences, Danielle has the following to say on what she thinks it takes to be anti-racist. Anti-racist is like not an identity. That's very important. It's a doing it's the actions that are anti-racist. It's not like I'm anti-racist. You know, my, my name, for instance, will not change, Danielle. But being anti-racist is a doing. It's not like, oh, I'm now because I read 20 books. I know it. Maybe you know some things, but you're only an anti-racist if you're acting 
Well, like the moment you're acting an anti-racist, anti-racist, you're an anti-racist. But then you continue walking, and then you're still Danielle or whoever. This is what I want to to say, like especially like to the more privileged communities who are listening, that allyship is not an identity; it's a doing. Then you're an ally, and then when you stop defending. For instance, black people in front of your family when they say something or, I don't know, other <laughs> communities that are marginalized, then you stop being the ally. It's a doing and it's a lifelong thing. It's not, oh, I uh, defended so many people. I have uh, given money to 20 organizations. Um, no, it's a lifelong thing. Unfortunately, it's a lifelong thing because for us, it's a lifelong coping and navigating with racism for us black people and yeah, non-white people, people of color, all, you know, also you for me. You have uh, plenty stories, you could write books, you know, your experiences, but we have to go on, you know, and this still happens every day. You never know when, where, how deep the, yeah, how painful like the interaction will be, you know, how racist. You never know. It's like a minefield. You never know when will be the next time I will be seen as a threat or when will be the next time people will be surprised that I, I, I don't steal <laughs> or, or I don't what, do whatever <laughs> or I don't, yeah. You can find more information about whiteness as a construction as well as other articles, books, and videos, Danielle recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Boomi and hashtag our racism. See you next month on October 5th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. This podcast is powered by the Competence Center for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of St. Gallen. A big thank you to Danielle for her time, patience, and energy in reliving for us her many painful memories and sharing with us important reflections on this issue.